maybe a little bit past that. And so I have a seven-year-old daughter. I would have her here because, wait, I'm in denial. She just turned 10 today. (laughs) I'm totally in denial. I told her she can't get any older, and she just keeps disobeying me. But uh, I would have have my 10-year-old daughter here. Um, because we have open, honest talks, and these are some of the things that we've talked about. But uh, we're going to talk on the issue of sexual temptation, and so I will give you that heads up and respect whatever uh, you want to do. But we're going to, and you're probably like, what are we doing this for on Thanksgiving weekend? Well, hey, we're just plowing through the text. Uh, Genesis 39, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Someone have a page number? Not that I can't find it. I just have a different Bible. In, in the, uh, one of the blue Bibles, does anyone have one? Just yell it out. Okay, so I hope you guys heard that. <laughs> All right, Genesis 39. Now Joseph had, had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord is with Joseph. So that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When the master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave Joseph success in everything he did, Joseph found favors in this Egyptian's eyes, and he became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to Joseph his care, everything he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household, In all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. I mean, there's a sermon right in that statement right there. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had because of this man of God who was in his house, both in the house and in the field. And so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, took notice of Joseph. And this is very Egyptian. This is just the culture in that day. The sexual promiscuity was off the charts. She says, come to bed with me. But Joseph refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. But one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his coat. So now he's wearing another coat. And she and said, come to bed with me. But he left his coat in her hand and probably ran almost naked out of the house. When she saw that he had left his coat in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew is brought to us has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me 
and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me and make, to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me, and he ran out of the house. The master heard the story. His wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't think he's that angry with Joseph. He knows. And so it says he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. All right, this is God's word. You can be seated. Probably a a story, just because the Joseph story itself is pretty common, popular. It's probably a story that you all know. The text starts with just this whole picture again of Joseph's life. It's, It's going down. It's still going down. It first went down into a pit. Now it's going down into Egypt. Because biblical speaking, you always go down to Egypt. Just like you always go up. You always make Aliyah when you go to the land, especially to Jerusalem, especially to Temple. When you go to Egypt, it's always going down. And this is the picture of Joseph's life right now. His whole life is going down. He's a stranger in a strange land. He's alone. He's cut off. He's thrown out. He's thrown down. Now he goes from a pit to being a slave. And I like how he puts this a few chapters later in Genesis 41. He's going to describe all of this, this whole chapter of his life in Egypt, as the land of my affliction. And see, again, what we see here, it's through affliction that God is orchestrating salvation. Not just for Joseph. Not even just for Joseph's family. But for us. Because God's salvation, it always, always, always comes through suffering. Now, I love verse 2. Because verse 2, in the midst of all of this, says the Lord was with Joseph. Do you know where you find God? Do you know the place where you most experience him? Where you see his face and hear his voice? It's in the pit. It's not when our life is going up. It's not when our life is all cozy and comfortable. It's when our life is going down, when we're losing things, when we're thrown out, cast out. This is the place where we know God and experience him. I mean, Psalm 34 says it so well. The the Lord is is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who who are crushed in spirit. It's just God's heart. And you need to know that this morning. Again, this is a review from last time. But if you're in this place right now, God's heart is so for you. It's so drawn to you. It's so drawn to brokenness. It is. Now, Looking at Joseph's situation, I think I'm stating the obvious when I say this, but Joseph has every reason to become a bitter person. But what we see in Joseph, instead, it's suffering 
that makes him not bitter, but better. And I want us to respect suffering because suffering by itself can ruin a person. It can ruin their life. It can ruin their hopes. It can ruin their dreams. But when you take one part suffering and add another part God and God's presence, what that combination produces in a person's life is glory, greatness. And that's what we're going to see in Joseph. I mean, he is now, even though his life is going down, he's becoming glorious and great. So the text says he lands in Potiphar's home. Potiphar, the text tells us, is captain of the guard, which means Potiphar is one of the most powerful people in the most powerful country in the world at this time. What he's responsible for is for Pharaoh's protection. So this also would make Potiphar an executioner. And the reason I say this is because he doesn't execute anyone in this story, does he? And I find that incredibly strange. Um, But it's in this place now where Joseph's life begins to go up. Because Potiphar takes notice of this Hebrew slave. What does the text say that Potiphar actually notices in Joseph? Look at verse 3. When Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. You know what Potiphar's seen? This is not a man who believes in the Lord, Yahweh. But he sees the Lord and the Lord's favor and the Lord's presence And Joseph, in this slave. I mean, in this in this in this in this godly teenager, he sees God, and therefore he puts Joseph, first of all, in charge of some, then more, until finally Joseph is put in charge of his entire household. Now, here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Can people right now see the Lord in you? Can people see the Lord's presence, the Lord's grace, the Lord's favor in you? In us? See, if God is with us, people will see it. They will. So here Potiphar, first of all, makes Joseph his personal attendant, meaning every day Joseph would be by his side serving Potiphar. I mean, this alone, I think, would be a pretty big deal for a Hebrew slave, but it doesn't stop here. He goes all the way from slave to being master of the house. I mean, he is master over one of the most elite households in all of Egypt, And what I want you to to know is this, that a man of Potiphar's status, he would probably have a huge estate with hundreds of slaves. Verse 6 says, Joseph is in charge of everything except for the food Potiphar ate. Now, this is biblical colloquialism that means 
everything except for his wife. Looking, look, don't touch her, Joseph. That's the only thing. Everything else, the entire estate, rule it, subdue it for my glory. So in effect, what Joseph has been given here is the status of the firstborn son. I mean, this is how Joseph would have understood it. So Joseph now is getting the code again. And with this status of firstborn son in Potiphar's household, this isn't just about power, perks, privileges. This is the huge responsibility of treating Potiphar's household as if he too were the father of this house. So that's what's going on here. Except Joseph has one problem. There's a desperate housewife. There's a cougar in the house. There is. In fact, some commentators have suggested that um, Potiphar, because he was so close to Pharaoh, so close to Pharaoh's household, including Pharaoh's harem, that he would have been made a eunuch. Now, whether he is or isn't, desperate housewives is nothing new under the sun, is it? And see, I think it's also safe to assume that in light of Potiphar's status, that he would be married to a very beautiful woman. And this beautiful woman is desperate for Joseph. Verse 6 says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Verse 7 says, she lifted up her eyes, just like Lot lifted up his eyes when he turned to Sodom. It's this whole phrase to convey intense lust. Then when she says, go to bed with me, these are just two words in the Hebrew. It's a very crass way of saying, have sex with me. Now, we have our English equivalents today. They'd be completely inappropriate for me to say right now. But that's how she's approaching him. And then in verse 10, it says, day after day. So this isn't just a one-time occurrence, but day after day after day, there she is. Look at verses 11 through 13. It says, one day Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. So Potiphar's wife caught him by his coat and said, come to bed with me, have sex with me. But he left his coat in her hand. He ran out of the house. See what she's doing? She's praying on him. She's watching. She's waiting for just the right opportunity. And when it comes, she pounces. Have sex with me. And this reminds me of of Proverbs 7. In fact, I think everybody this week ought to be reading Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. But this is what it says uh, in, in, in Proverbs, at the end of Proverbs 7. It says, starting in verse 12, Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. Her feet never stay at home, now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have 
food from my fellowship offering at home, meaning I have done everything right before God. So I came out here to meet you, even though I just came from church, and I looked for you, and I found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt and perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's eat, drinkly. Let's, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money. And then it goes down and it says, now, my, now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are victims that she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. And see, in all of this, Joseph, the text says, he refuses in verses 8 and 10. And then it says, Joseph runs. You know what I say? Impressive. Unbelievably impressive. You know what's even more impressive is that in refusing Potiphar, in running from her, in resisting her, he's making the choice to throw his whole life in the toilet. So here's my question. How can Joseph do this? How does Joseph resist temptation? And before I get to that, I just want to say a few things. We live in the world of Joseph. I mean, we know Desperate Housewives is so much more than a TV show, isn't it? I mean, Grand Rapids is full of them. It's not just wives, but desperate working husbands. It's singles hooking up. It's our youth. It's our young people. I mean, even the sexual experimentation that our junior hires are doing right now, I think, would boggle our minds. Because we live in Egypt. In fact, there's only one sexual ethic today. Safe sex. So I'm not describing right now, too, just the world that's outside these walls. I'm talking about our world right in here. So my question is this. Where are the Josephs? Where are the young men, the young women, who can refuse, who can resist? Where are the freaks? Freaks. Honestly, because that is what Joseph is. He is a freak in that culture. And for us to refuse and to resist like Joseph, we're going to be freaks. In fact, uh, one of our good friends um, was applying to the FBI. And they, do, they, they interview everything. Room full of people. I mean, the scrutiny in there is just amazing. What's your sex life like? I'm a virgin. The whole room just burst out laughing. It's laughable. Tim Tebow. Have you noticed how our culture today just loves mocking that man? Why? 
I have two reasons why in my mind. One is because he did a commercial during the Super Bowl where he talked against abortion. And number two is because he has outright said he's a virgin. And all of this, of course, is flowing out of his faith. We mock that. He's a freak. You know, I think today sex is just viewed as just another appetite. I mean, I can have an appetite for exercise. I can have an appetite for a hamburger. I can have an appetite for a new coat. And yeah, and I have an appetite for sex. And they're all kind of the same. And then you add to this that we live in such a consumer culture today that sex just becomes another thing for consumption. It's just another form of entertainment. It's just another recreational sport. I mean, should we go play tennis or should we go to a movie or maybe we should just have sex? And see, right now, rather than just saying this is all wrong, I want to get behind the the what and state why. Because the Bible gives a why. It's not just this is wrong, don't do it, but it says why it's wrong. And I'll start with this. Need to start here. Sex itself is not wrong. It's not bad. It's not dirty. I mean, so many Christians just kind of put sex in the bad bucket or, or they, they, they place it in the dirty category. Sex is not dirty. Because the things that are bad and dirty in this world are things that God hasn't made. Things like hatred and jealousy and murder and stealing. That's bad. But God made sex. God made us male and female. God is the one who designed our bodies just the way they are. God made us sexual beings. God made us with a sexual appetite. Your sexual appetite is not bad. Because anything that God makes, is, it, it's good, it's beautiful. And I think we need to get rid of any prudish attitude towards sex. Because that's not Christian. Read the Song of Solomon this week and find out even how sensual the Bible can be. I'll take you right now to Proverbs 5. Again, it's just whetting your appetite to read uh, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. But this, my headline over five says, warning against adultery. Then all the, all the way, by the time you get to verse three, it says, for the lips of the adulterous woman, they drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 15, where the proverb says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? What's that a reference to? Female sexuality. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. What's that a reference to? I know, you're bashful. Male sexuality. I mean... Man, that'd be an interesting sermon, wouldn't it? May your fountains be blessed. (laughs) And may you rejoice 
in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, and may you forever be intoxicated with her love. Yeah, that's in the Bible. And it's this, it's, it's this command from God to have sex, to enjoy it. But to enjoy it in the place where God has placed it. God made sex for marriage. In fact, in Genesis 2, when you read the, the second creation account, right after God's final crowning act of creation, which is the creation of what, men? Woman. <laughs> it's the best. Okay? I mean, that's a great spot for an amen right there. What does he make next? Marriage and sex. And that's how creation ends. And see, with God, the covenant of marriage comes first and then come sex and romance because it's within marriage two people who've made this Till death do we part covenant that God places sex. And see, what we have today is the wrong order. Young people today, they want sex and romance first. And then if that's satisfactory, then maybe we'll make a little commitment. But see, God's order is this. And I want you to hear me on this, young people. The covenant must always come first. And I'm here to tell you as a married person, the best sex, the best romance comes out of covenant. But see, here's our problem. We don't understand covenant anymore. We don't understand this till death do we part commitment. And I think one of the main reasons for this is the values of the marketplace have come to dominate every sphere of our, of, of our lives. Everything today is consumer-based, even relationships. And so we treat our relationships like another commodity, like another product to be consumed. And we think to ourselves, well, I'm in this friendship or I'm in this relationship or I'm in this marriage as long as it meets my needs. And if not... I'm out. See, and in this consumer-based way of doing things, it's the product, not the person that matters. It's what's in it for me. And see, I think we have a generation of people growing up, and I'm not blaming this generation because the problem is on us and those older than them is that we haven't taught them or shown them that there's a whole other way to do relationship, and it's not consumer-based, but covenant-based. For better, for worse, and richer, and poor, and sickness, and in health. I'm in it. And see, what our consumer-based culture wants to tell people is that sex is simply about one's body and one's bodily needs and appetites. And no more. It's no different than a round of golf. 
But see, what the Bible teaches is that sex is so much more than just about the body. It's about yourself, your whole self. And how the Bible sees sex is sex is not just giving away your body, but you are giving away your whole self. And see, what people want today is I want your body, I don't want you. But see, the Bible says don't split those two things apart. We must never give away our bodies unless we first are willing to give away ourself, our whole self. And the place we do this is marriage. That's why we say at the altar, with all that I am and all that I have, is that I give my body to you. I give myself to you. And see, it's only in this place where two people can be naked and fully exposed, completely vulnerable, where they can give themselves away because they know this person has made a covenant to me, to love me, to be with me, to accept me. Till death do we part. And see, what we've done is we've taken something so sacred, so holy, and we've turned it into just another commodity to be sold in the marketplace. And it, it's no wonder then that, that so much sex today exists in the marketplace and that the market values define our view of sex. And in all of this, I'll tell you what we've done. We have cheapened not only sex, but in cheapening sex, we've cheapened one another And we've especially cheapened ourselves. And I'll tell you what it's left. It's left a trail of shame, of guilt, of exploitation, of abuse, scars, wounds that no one wants to talk about today. Eating disorders, perversion, pornography, affairs, abortions, low self-esteem, alienation. All of this, I think, is birthed out of our cheap view of sex. You and I need to be freaks. And in being freaks, we not only exalt others, we exalt ourselves, we exalt God. So if you want to be a Joseph and resist this temptation, I think it starts with verse 9. Joseph says, you, wife of Potiphar, you are his wife. Now, that might not sound like a very big deal to you. But for Joseph, this is a life and death matter. Because you have to remember that Joseph's family is Bedouin. We've talked about this before in the Bedouin background. Covenants, they were literally cut in blood. Remember Abraham, how God comes to him and makes the covenant, and then how God cuts that covenant literally in blood through a ceremony that that, that Abraham would have been very familiar with, where the animals are split in two, cut in half, and they pass through. Except only God passes through. But that's a whole other story. In fact, to this day in Bedouin culture, it's still not... It's still pretty common for a marriage covenant to be cut this way in blood. 
So when Joseph says to her, you are his wife, what he's saying is this is a covenant that's cut in blood. And if I violate this covenant, someone should cut me to pieces. Just like those animals are cut in pieces. And someone should cut you in pieces. And someone should cut your father into pieces. It's a covenant. And how dare you and I violate a covenant that has been made, made before God. How dare we apply our cheap 21st century Western cultural values to God's view of marriage and sex? See, for Joseph, marriage is a covenant. You respect it or you be cut to pieces. Joseph also refused for another, another reason. Uh, look at verse 8. It says, but he refused. And listen to his reason why. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In other words, what Joseph is saying is this. Your husband gave me the status of firstborn son. And with this status, I am to treat everything in his household as if I'm the father. Now you might be saying, well, that's Joseph. He has this unique status. I, I, I don't come close to having that status. Really? Who are you? Do you know? And what are you doing here? See, this is where we need a little dose of theology because we need good theology if we're going to fight this kind of temptation. Whether you know this or not right now, the Bible says you have a father, a heavenly father who has chose you. He picked you. He brought you into his family. He made you a son and a daughter in his household. And even more than that, Read Hebrews 12, verse 23. You have the status of a firstborn son in his family. And see, as firstborn sons, our master, our Lord, our Adonai, he has entrusted everything to our care. David understood this. That's why he writes Psalm 8. He says, you have made us a little less than Elohim, a little less than God. You've crowned us with glory and honor. You've put all things under our feet, everything. Who are you? You're his. Why are you here? He's entrusted everything to you. See, we are image bearers of the all-glorious creator of the world. We were made to be God-like, to reflect his glory. And we are here because our Lord, our Father, entrusted us with everything. You see, when I'm dealing with sexual temptation, sometimes I'm just like, nope, that's another man's daughter. 
But it's even more than that. It's God's. That's his child. How dare I? How dare you? We need to treat God's creation as if we are firstborn sons, because we are. Another reason why Joseph could resist this, this temptation. Look at verse 9. Look at how he puts this. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin? What did he just say? See, you know what's lacking in the church today? (laughs) We no longer have the guts to call sin, sin. It's sin. It's wicked. I, I, I know of pastors in churches that don't even want to use the word anymore. That would be like a hospital refusing to call cancer, cancer. Ah, it's not cancer. It's not a brain tumor. It's just a headache. Just take a few aspirin. It'll be okay. Listen to me. If a hospital did that, we'd call that male practice. There's male practice going all over in our churches today. It's just a headache. It's no big deal. It's not going to hurt anyone. You know what nice, Gentile, soft-spoken Jesus said? (laughs) Thank you. That laughter means something to me. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And I say, wow, that's harsh. That's how we treat cancer, isn't it? And see, Jesus, too, is teaching us that sin is cancer in in that it's going to kill us. That's why Jesus follows this up with saying it's better to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It's not me talking. That's Jesus. See, this is why Joseph refuses Potiphar's wife. Day after day, why he finally has to run. He'd rather throw his whole career away than to be thrown into hell. Now, I'm not saying that this is an unforgivable sin. Not even close, because we're going to be looking in a couple weeks at Judah and Tamar. (sighs) Talk about an awesome story. This is how Joseph maintains his integrity. This is how he resists. This is how he remains pure. This is how he's a freak, a godly freak in that world. I have to say this. I'll just be really honest here. Of all the sins that still get a hold in my heart, this one has a power like no other. Can I just get one amen from one man right now? (laughs) Yeah. 
And I feel like winning this battle, I, I, I need more than just the three steps. I need more than just the five ways to sexual purity. What I need in me, I need a power. I need a power in my heart and life that is greater than the power of temptation. Because for me, it has to be more than just saying no, 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 no. There has to be a greater yes that makes it easier for me to say nope. Joseph has that power. Because notice in verse 9, Joseph doesn't just call this sin. He says this is sin against God. And I'm like, what? I understand all you. This could be sin against Potiphar, even Potiphar's wife. I could even understand this to be sin against himself. But he says, no, this is sin against God. And see, the reason why Joseph puts it that way or says this, because David says the same thing in Psalm 51 when he blows it against you and you only have I sinned. See, Joseph understands that if he did this, he would be doing more than just defiling another person's marriage, but that he would be defiling his own marriage. I mean, the very marriage for which he's been made, the marriage for which you and I have been made. See, this is why when God makes the world... This is why the last two things that God makes in creation is marriage and sex. Because these two realities, more than any other thing, best describe why God has made us and what we are to enjoy with him. They're just pictures. They're just a foretaste. That's why in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about marriage and he's talking about the two becoming one flesh, he can't help but all of a sudden talk about the union we have with our bridegroom. We're the bride. I want you to see something in this text that just, it moved me. There are two words that describe Joseph in verse 6. It says he's well-built, and handsome. These are the same two words in Hebrew that describe his mother Rachel. So the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? In Genesis 29, verse 17, it says Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. In Hebrew, it's the same. Now, do you remember how Jacob, that would be Joseph's dad, how he served seven years to get Rachel. Then it says in the next verse, oh, but they only seem like a few days. Why? He was in love. Oh, but let me tell you, during these seven years, Joseph had to, or Jacob had to work hard. He had to deny himself. He had to say no, 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 no to so many things. Why? Because of a greater yes. His love for Rachel. It made those seven years of discipline and self-denial, hard work, 
like nothing. See, to resist temptation, you and I, it's not just us saying no, no, no. What we need is we need a Rachel. We need what Thomas Chalmers termed the expulsive power of a greater affection. We need an affection, a desire that's greater than our desire for sex or greater than our desire for whatever else we're being tempted with. Whatever idol might have a grip on our heart. Because it's more than just our our power to say no, no, no. We need that greater yes. We all need a Rachel. Now Freud said this. He said spiritual longings are just frustrated sexual desires. You know what the Bible says? Sexual desire is just frustrated spiritual longings. Because the ultimate purpose of even sex is it's a foretaste of the joy and the ecstasy of the union we get to have with God. See, God is our Rachel. He is the ultimate lover. He's the ultimate beauty. He's the ultimate thing right now, whether your heart knows it, that your heart desires And see, God, you need to know this about God. It's all over Scripture. He's a lover. He's not just a king. He's not just a lord. He's not just all-powerful. He is a lover. And as a lover, he doesn't force himself upon you. He doesn't force love from you. He wants to woo you. He wants to melt your heart. And you know how he does it? He's the ultimate bridegroom. Isaiah 53, verse 2. Just listen to these words. He, Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. These are the same two words in Isaiah 53, verse 2, that are used to describe Joseph and Rachel. In other words, the ultimate Joseph, the ultimate beauty, He gave it up. He gave up his beauty. He gave up his glory. He gave up his majesty. And instead of coming to this world like beautiful Rachel, he instead comes to this world like ugly Leah. Why? (laughs) Because the beauty was made a beast to make the beast beautiful. Ephesians 5, and Paul's talking about marriage, and he starts talking about Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Paul says, he came to make us beautiful, without blemish, stain, or defect. Why would he do such a thing? Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy set before 
Jesus as he is enduring the pain, the agony of the cross is us. Where's Rachel? You are his Rachel. He will do anything to get you into the marriage. And see, to the degree that you and I see that we are his Rachel, he becomes our Rachel. That's the greater yes. That's the ultimate yes. Is he a Rachel? God, I just know that there are probably some in this room that feel like that woman caught in adultery. I just pray, God, that they would even now hear the words of Psalm 130, that with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared. In the words of Jesus, neither do I condemn thee, I'll go and sin no more. But even more than that, today, Lord, open the eyes of our heart to see your beauty and the beautiful thing that you did in giving up your beauty to make all us ugly Leahs. Your Rachel, your pearl of great price, your precious. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross. For that beauty set before you, us. Set us free, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.